This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Truly, Lord, you are good. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Unchanged, unchanging, forever the same. We rest, Lord, in the peace that you offer us in Christ. We pray that you would minister your goodness to us now as we turn to your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Well, hello everyone, good to see you. <laughs> and I invite you, please, if you are able to remain standing and open to 1 Peter chapter 4, page 1016 in the Bibles we provide. If you're visiting today, maybe you're here for the baptisms. We are <clears throat> delighted you're here. We've been studying the book of 1 Peter, and we're coming now to the heart and soul of his message, found here in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19. Peter has been teaching the first century church how to remain strong and endure persecution. We come now here, chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. May bless its reading and hearing to each of your hearts. You may have a seat. Thank you. The late and well-known British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, Affliction hardens those whom it does not soften. Uh, a more contemporary saying I think many of you are familiar with is trials can make you better or make you bitter. <laughs> and Peter has been teaching all of us that for the Christian trials, that is, he's talking about suffering because we are Christians, they are inevitable. Uh, you have been called to this, he said in, in chapter 2. And so the question is not, will we suffer? He says, when you are insulted, right? 
The question is, how can we be softened by them and not hardened by them? How can we become better rather than bitter? How do we respond when fiery trials come upon us? And this has been his main subject, and it's a subject that's hard to return to. I know maybe some of you are starting to feel exhausted. You know, we, we come back, and again, it's about suffering and persecution and trials and opposition and hostility. It's, it's, a, it's a subject that's fraught with difficulties of all sorts. For some, to keep hearing about this subject, it keeps bringing up something you went through in the past, and you'd rather leave it just there in the past. <laughs> Another pitfall is I could go on and on. It'll sound like I'm coming from some high, academic high tower, you know, philosophizing about doctrine and so forth, and it may feel like it's devoid of sympathy. Well, that's something we can all easily fall into. Another we can easily fall into as well is that we can minimize the real pain that people go through because we come up with quick answers, you know, petty little Christian responses or a verse here or a verse there, you know, or... And we just don't sit silent long enough to listen and share the pain that people are growing through. You know. Here's three easy steps, right, for, to persevere under the most trying times. Well, all of you know, I think most of you, if you've been a Christian for any time, it's just not like that. There are no three or four or five or six easy steps to persevere and Affliction is, is real. Affliction can be profound. It can linger sometimes. It, uh, it can be tremendously disorienting. You know, it sets us off the path. We get confused. We make bad decisions. It's often very difficult to get through affliction with your faith and your hope still intact. <laughs> and in fact, some, some never do. And that's why this is all important, you know. And it's not always a crisis, is it? Some affliction is, uh, on some level, woven into the fabric of our daily lives, you know. For some of you, it's not a crisis, just something, a weight that's there. And you already know it's going to be there until you leave, you know. And so it, it's, a, it's a subject that's difficult to get come back to time and time again. But the Lord knows what we need. He has brought us to First Peter. We need to trust that he wants us to hear what he has to say. So when through fiery trials, right, what are we to do? How are we to respond? Well, we need to hear what God has to say to us because this is all part of God's design. He has purposes for us. He has told us that, and he loves us, and he wants to help us through these times. So let's hear what God has to say from his word yet again, yet again. And here we, we hear once again from Peter and not the opinions of a man. He is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he is one who experienced his own sufferings. And he witnessed the sufferings of Christ. So let's hear what he has to say. Notice how he begins tenderly with the word beloved. Beloved. He wants to introduce uh, once again... Uh, the subject, he knows what he's going to say, is powerful. He's about to begin his conclusion, but he starts tenderly to get our attention once again. Loved ones, beloved ones. And before he introduces anything really new or really starts the conclusion, what he does right away is he gathers together several strands 
several elements of what he's been saying all the way from chapter 2 through chapter 4. And he brings them together here in rapid, in rapid fashion in verses 12 through 19. He tells us how we are to respond to unjust suffering once again. One thing I do think is new is there seems to be a new sense of urgency because of the rapidity in which he brings these things together. And, and this short paragraph has nine present imperatives. That is nine commands. Do this, do this, do this. And don't do this twice, he says. Don't do this. And so you feel the, uh, the weightiness of what he's getting at. right? And these, these are not six steps. Uh, they are not put together in any logical order per se, but every one of the imperatives, every one of these commands are all rooted in the gospel, rooted in the good news of what God is doing for his people. Peter has carefully, all throughout his letter, he has placed what he's teaching us, our experiences, our suffering, and our hope, he places it in the larger overarching story of what God is doing the overarching story of the history of redemption and where is this all leading to an inheritance that is imperishable, glorious. And so he does so again and I'll try and keep that perspective. Now these six commands, I think, or six uh, imperatives will make a, a good skeletal structure for our time together. So that's what I'll structure them around. But I'm combining two of them as one uh, and I'll explain that when I get to them. So here we have five, right? Five faith-filled way, faith ways to respond to fiery trials, unjust suffering. And I remind you again that no one passage contains a complete template for any theology in the Bible, right? And so this is not everything the Bible says about you and me and how we should respond to suffering. But here are five faithful ways to respond to suffering. We, as believers, we should expect fiery trials. That's one. We should exult in fiery trials. That's two. We should evaluate. We should extol. And we should entrust when we find ourselves in fiery trials. And borrowing there somewhat from an outline from a commentator with some changes. Let's stick to the very first one. As believers, we should expect fiery trials. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised, he says. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, because it will come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. you know, Why is this happening to me of all people? You know, He said, you need to expect these things by now. When you're ridiculed for being a Christian on your job because of your decision to be honest, don't be surprised. You should have expected it. There's not anything strange happening to you. right? When you're ostracized by close friends you had all your life, when you are insulted by family members and rejected by people whom you've loved because of your faith in Christ, don't be surprised, he says. This is to be expected. He told us in chapter 2, you've been called to this. 
We've mentioned before, Paul said this, the apostle. He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There's no other way. And our Lord Jesus himself told us, remember, he said, if they hated me, they will hate you. So know that, he says. Peter's just saying the same thing, you know, but he, what is it that we should expect? We should not only expect hostility, Peter wants you to expect the workings of God. He wants you to see God at work in your sufferings. God at work in the hostility that others show you for your faith. And how do I know that? Because of his choice of words. When he talks about a fiery trial or ordeal, maybe your translation puts it that way. That word in the original text, porosis, you can hear in there slightly purify. Porosis, purify. It refers to a refiner's fire that purifies. The same word was used on the lips of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 when he spoke to a church and he said there, I'm going to give you gold purimai, gold that I've purified, gold that I have refined, you see. Again, he's talking about the refiner's fire, a fire that purifies metal. A fire in which you put metal like silver or gold as a silversmith or goldsmith does that contains both the pure elements of silver or gold but impure elements as well. And it's that fire that turns up the heat. You see, uh, normally uh, the pure and the impure can exist together side by side, but place them in that extreme furnace and they can't exist side by side. And the impurities separate from that which is pure, and they rise to the top, the dross, right? And then it's taken away. And so that's what he is talking about, these fiery trials. You, many of you have already heard the illustration that a silversmith was asked, how do you know when the silver's fully purified? He said, when I can see my own reflection in it. And that's what God's doing. He wants to see the reflection of Christ in your life. These are fiery trials sent by God, purifying trials sent by God, he says, to test you, to test you, not the way some people test you in order that you might fail, (laughs) you know, make the exam so complicated no one can possibly get an A, but to prove you is what the word means, to test you, to prove you. He has been, again, alluding to these things ever since he began the letter. Remember chapter one, what he said to them? Uh, Verse six, he says, I know you've been grieved by various trials. Verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is, he says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what God's doing, you see. He's purifying and he's certifying that your faith is genuine. Your faith is real. And that's something every Christian needs to see for himself or herself. God knows what it is. But you are able to rejoice when you see yourself on the other side of the rapids and you see that you got through it. And you know that God has given you faith and God has sustained you. So this is what's happening. This is the purpose that Peter wants you to expect, to see. Don't be surprised 
not only at the hostility, but don't be surprised at the fiery trials because God is testing, he's purifying, he's certifying. So remember to think that way, he's saying. And we remember that Peter's talking about the testing that involves persecution, hostility for the Christian faith. But beloved, much of what Peter says here applies to all sorts of suffering. Suffering of circumstances, suffering of disease, all sorts of suffering. Much of that fits into what Peter's talking about. So let's think about for a moment this purifying process, right? What is God doing? Beloved, I can tell you from my own experience, in your heart, as in my heart, uh, are various allegiances, various allegiances, things and people that we love or things and people that we trust. You may or may not be aware of them. You may or may not be aware to the degree that you're trusting in that or the degree that you're devoted to such and such. And when that devotion or that trust or that love exceeds uh, the love you should have for God or replaces it, you see, it has become an idolatry. And so God sends the heat. He sends the furnace of trials to separate our allegiances, to make them clear, to bring up the dross to the surface so that you can see them, to purify our faith and purify our allegiance to Christ. See, how does this happen? It, it, it comes to you and me as a fork in the road. A fork in the road in your career. A fork in the road in your education. A fork in the road in a relationship with anyone. And when you come to this fork in the road, God has brought you to a place where you're going to have to choose. You're going to have, the heat is on. You're going to have to choose between allegiance to Christ and the loss and pain, hurt that'll bring or allegiance to this other thing. For example, you may not think that you're so devoted to your career that it would become an idol to you until God turns up the heat and forces you to choose between allegiance to Christ, honesty, integrity, whatever it may be, or love for your career. And at that moment, you see, the allegiances are bubbling to the top and the differences are being made clear. You may not think that your devotion to your family is so strong that it's become an idolatry for you till God brings you to a fork in the road where you need to choose to, between allegiance to Christ and your family and how they'll respond, how they'll react to what you're saying to them because they think differently. They follow a different master. And so this is what Peter's telling us. He says, don't be surprised at these fiery trials. They've come to purify. They've, they've been sent to certify the genuineness of your faith. God desires a pure faith, and you need to see it. 
of course, and again, this is said in different ways. And throughout the New Testament, throughout the scriptures, the, the brother of the Lord, uh, James, he writes in James chapter one, most of you, you know this, he says, consider it or count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. They come in all sizes, shapes, and colors. <laughs> when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, the, pro- the per- proofing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's a product right there. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Maturity, you see. That's what God's after. The author of Hebrews speaks of trials in the language of God's fatherly discipline. And he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, he says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. <laughs> I mean, all say, amen. <laughs> you got that one, right? <laughs> in the moment, absolutely, in the moment, standing there, staring at your family member, knowing what's going to happen. Looking at your paycheck and thinking, this could be the last one here. All discipline, for the moment, seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, instructed by it. And that's the goal, to bring fruit, which is righteousness, steadfastness, endurance, maturity. Suffering is the gateway. Suffering is the pathway to instruction to maturity. It's it's the pathway to experiencing the life, heart, transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's God's schoolmaster. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design. What did we sing together? Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's what God's after. And so the first faith-filled response to, to fiery trials is to expect them and to see them as the workings of God in your life. They are not a sign of the absence of God in your life. They are actually a sign of the presence of God, the purifying presence of God in your life. He loves you too much to leave you the same. (laughs) He wants to see the reflection of his son in your face in your life. And some have said this may be really the, the major part of responding rightly to suffering. Right here. Now, Peter has other things to say, but right here, this may be the biggest piece of it all, which is what? Having a biblical theology of suffering that places to suffering in what? In the overarching story of what God is doing. He has redeemed me from sin, not only that I may be forgiven, but that I may be sanctified, purified, and transformed into his, the image of his son. And he does this in part, not totally, but in part through the furnace. But the goal is that it will yield fruit and in the end, a share in the glory of Christ, you see. 
And so that's the first response. It's hard to get there at times. And once there, it's hard to stay there. Child of heaven, thy thoughts refine, we sang. Refine your thoughts. Think God's thoughts. What is he doing? The second response to fiery trials is that we should exult in trials. Verse 13 and 14. You look down. But rejoice. He's saying, don't do this. That is, act like it's strange, but do this. Rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, he says, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What did James say? Consider it all joy. He says what? Rejoice. What does Paul say? Rejoice again. I say rejoice in all things, says Paul. What did Jesus say? That if they insult you for my, on my account, rejoice. <laughs> you say that is a difficult place to get to. Absolutely, it can be. But it, it, it happens when our hearts and minds are thinking in the framework of what God's doing in our lives. And Peter gives us here two, two reasons to rejoice immediately. Again, there are other things the Bible says, but the first thing he says that rejoice because present sufferings are being shared with Christ and they will increase your future joy at the revelation of Christ, you see. So right now, you can rejoice because you're not suffering in isolation. Your sufferings are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. There's a fellowship with him, and it's intimate. Uh, You remember what happened to, to Saul when he was converted and later changed his name to Paul. He was on the journey to the road of Damascus, and there he's confronted uh, with a, a vision, of a, a bright light, a voice, and he was persecuting the early Christians, the church of the Lord Jesus, and he heard this voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, we are the body of Christ, and he is the head of the body and our sufferings is a sharing in his sufferings which means he is with us in them and he understands them he feels them on our behalf Doug also touched on that in uh, at the retreat some of you remember sympathetic resignation well he says rejoice now because as you uh, as you share in the sufferings of Christ They prepare you for greater joy in the end. And there's a connection there uh, in the degree in which you will rejoice in the end. He says, in so far as, that's an important word, in so far as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Two things that tells us, not everyone suffers the same amount. But in so far as you suffer, in so far as you suffer, uh, in so far as you suffer, you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ and in a degree that will multiply in some way your joy and gladness in the end, right? Two people get the same sickness. One of them isn't affected very much by it. And when they hear, here's the, here's the, here's the cure, that's great. 
But another one is affected deeply by it. It's hurt. It's painful. It's been long. And when he said, here's the cure, there's more joy, you see. And so he says, there's a connection between suffering now and rejoicing then. And your experiences here are only contributing to what you'll feel on the day that God reveals the glory of his son in the presence of all. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, it's the Paul, Apostle Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. Notice the connection. This affliction is preparing something. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So he says, rejoice, exult in your sufferings. That's the first reason. The second reason, he says, because if you are insulted for Christ, that is to be blessed. That's a fervent statement in the original language. Blessed are you if you are insulted for the name of Christ. Why would I be blessed to be insulted along with Christ or for his name? He says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's why you should rejoice. I think what he's getting at here, there's debate about what he means, the spirit of glory and the spirit of God, but he's talking about two characteristics of the same spirit. He's saying he is the spirit of glory, he's the spirit of God, just like he is the spirit of holiness, the spirit of Christ, and so forth. But he says, when you are able to rejoice when you're being insulted, remember being maligned, he said earlier, because of the name of Christ, that is a demonstration that the spirit that will reveal the glory of Christ, the spirit of God is resting upon you. Say, what does that look like? It may look in part like this, chapter one. Remember chapter one, he, he said this to these Christians who are suffering. Uh, he said in verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. And that should be true of every Christian in this room. Though you've not seen him with your eyes, you love him even though you're suffering. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There it is, glory. Remember when we studied this, we said what he's saying here, it's a glorious kind of joy. It's an inexpressible, glorious kind of joy. Why? Because it's not natural, man. You were insulted. You were maligned. You, you were in a circumstance in which you were criticized. You were made fun of because you were a Christian. You are hurt because you are a Christian. And, and somehow, inexpressibly, you experience a joy. A joy like Paul and Silas singing in prison. Wow. It's inexpressible. Hard to explain it except in this way. What? The spirit of glory and the spirit of God is resting upon you, my brother and sister. He's not denying that the spirit indwells you if you're a Christian. He indwells all of us. But in a very unique way, it's as if he's drawing from Isaiah when he said the spirit would rest upon Messiah. That spirit rests upon you when you are suffering. That's how intimate his ministry is is to suffering Christians. And so we expect trials, we exult in trials, and thirdly, we evaluate in trials. So here's what I mean. Here's where I'm bringing two 
two commands here together, two imperatives together. Uh, look at verse 15. They're both negative, so I wanted to state them positively. He says, but let none of you suffer. There's the first, the next imperative. Do not suffer in this way, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. There's the second imperative there, negative. Don't be ashamed. So don't suffer wrongly. Don't be ashamed. I mean, don't suffer for wrong reasons, and don't be ashamed. So I'm saying, how do we respond to hostilities? Well, they become a time to evaluate, a time for you to evaluate. Why does everyone talk about you at work? Is it because you're a Christian? Or are you a nosy meddler? (laughs) Is that why you're suffering, you say? Why do you have the reputation you have? Is it because you shine the light of Christ? Or are you suffering for some other reason? You're a loudmouth. You're you're a critic. You're self-righteous. And so it's a time for evaluation. Verse 17, it seems like he's moving in a descending order. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer. I hope not, right? Okay, I mean, let's, what do you mean, Peter? Well, uh, don't, none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. Well, some of us steal from our employers. Or as an evildoer. Well, that's a pretty broad statement. There's a whole lot of evil we could. But then he separates the last word with even as. Even as a meddler. And so he's descending by saying this. Make sure you are, if you're experiencing hostility from others, make sure it's because of your faith in Christ and not because you have become even what? Even a meddler. Even a meddler. It's a unique word, this word meddler. You know, it's the only time it appears in the Greek New Testament. And it never appeared in any Greek literature before 1 Peter. Some people think he coined this word, and some translators are having a hard time deciding what exactly does it mean, because it's not used in other contexts, but they've all agreed it's, they've come to get down on this. They think it means uh, what, 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 what this translated here as someone who interferes with other people's affairs. But the point is, he's getting smaller and smaller, and what he's saying is, Make sure if people are hostile toward you that it's because of Christ. Don't be even a meddler. Be careful how you live in the world. And so you evaluate why you are suffering hostility. But should you find that you are suffering as a Christian, he says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, it's true, they're persecuting you because of you go to church, because you have said some things about your faith. Well, then evaluate how you're responding. He says, don't be ashamed. Let him not be ashamed of the name Christian. And remember, shame is not just what you feel, it's how you... It's what you do. And Peter understands this better than most of us, right? He not only felt shame the night that Jesus was arrested in that fateful moment, but he acted shamefully because he would not take on the name Christian, so to speak. He said, no, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. So Peter speaks to us and says, don't do what I did on that night. 
If you are persecuted for being a Christian because of your faith, because of your, your ethics, because of your commitment to sexual purity, because of your biblical view on gender, on humanity, on eternity, on the nature of human me- beings and so forth. If you are persecuted as a Christian for being a Christian, he says, don't act shamefully. Don't withdraw. Keep your ground. And then he explains why. Why is this important? Why is it important? Verse 17 begins with four. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's us, the church, the people of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then verse 18 repeats what he says, but more in a proverbial way. If the righteous is scarcely saved, that word means with difficulty, if the righteous with difficulty are saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And some think he's drawn a bit off of Proverbs chapter 11, so what, what, what does he mean here? It's, the t- it's st- stand your ground because uh, the time for judgment has begun and it begins with us, you see. Well, what did he say to us last week? He says, the end of all things is near. What did we say? The New Testament says, we are in the last days. And so what Peter's saying is the judgment has begun and it begins with the church. It culminates with unbelievers in the end. And he is purifying us now. That's the nature of the judgment now. What kind of judgment does the church receive? Purification, not condemnation. He's drawing from the prophet Malachi. Much of what he's saying is drawing from the imagery and the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That is John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Some think that was when Jesus arrived and cleansed the temple. And the messenger, the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Here it is, verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And, when, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, purifying, cleansing. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Who were the sons of Levi? The priests. What is the church? What does Peter said the church is? A kingdom of priests. And so he's here, he came, he's purifying, and he will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. What did Peter say in chapter two we're doing? We're offering, we're bringing offerings to him now as purified priests. And so the judgment of God has begun. It begins with us, the church. It's a judgment of purification in these days. And what about the end? Malachi goes on, verse 5, he says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That sounds like the end of the book of Revelation. And so what is Peter saying? He's saying, listen, 
The judgment of God has begun in these last days since the death and resurrection of Jesus. The judgment of God begins with us, his people. It's a judgment of purification. And he says, if, if the people of God are saved with this much difficulty, what's he talking about? Trials. Difficult for us, not for God. <laughs> and remember, salvation is not just your justification, the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is that umbrella word that includes what? Our purification, our transformation, and ultimately our glorification, being made just like Christ. He's saying if Christians are saved with this much difficulty of going through the pains of life, being persecuted for our faith, you should stand. Because this is what's true of a Christian. God's purifying you. And if we're saved with this kind of difficulty, what in the world is going to happen to those who reject them? And they will face a con they will face a fire as well, but not the fire of purification. They'll face an endless fire of condemnation. Scripture says this is the second death. We all die physically. But this is the second death, the lake of fire, endless, unquenchable. So he says, you hold your ground. Let your faith be purified and tested, and you'll be able to rejoice all the more in the end. And so it's a time to evaluate where we stand in trials, and it's also a time to extol, to extol the name Christian, to glorify God. He says, let him glorify God by that name. That name is Christian, verse 16, second half. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Christian. Remember where that name came from? Remember the early church didn't really call themselves Christians much. They were first called Christians in Antioch, and that was a derogatory term. It's an insult. Little, little Christ. Look at the little mini Christ here. <laughs> How cute. <laughs> little Christs. But then the church said, you know what? We'll take it. Christiani, little Christ, we'll take that. <laughs> and they withstood the fires of Nero. They endured the fires of Nero as Christians. And so he says, don't be ashamed or act ashamed. Extol, glorify God. Bring glory to him, how? By wearing the badge of Christian. Not arrogantly, wearing it joyfully. That's what he's talking. Take it, name it. Over the years, I counsel some men who are going to take on new jobs, and they talk about the setting in which they're going into. And they said they're concerned. I'm concerned about my, you know, no one knows yet. I'm a Christian there, and I go in there, and no one knows what I'm thinking. I said, you go in there day one, you put a picture of your wife on your desk and a Bible next to it. And so day one, you take the name Christian. And whenever it comes at you, you just stay true to what you've just said. God will sustain you. I think every one of us, if you haven't already, we're going to come to a fork in the road where this is what we're going to have to do, right? We're going to uh, glorify God and in that name, extol in that name, Christian, yes. I'm a Christian. I've told you before, how this came to a head for me with my, my band, uh, but I, I haven't shared with you how this also came to a fork in the road for me. Uh, after I came to faith and uh, I was uh, seeking education in the computer programming industry, I was going to Computer Learning Center in their program way back when. Uh, 
back where there weren't no pictures. Uh, and I was learning computer programming, computer learning center. There was about 50 students in this class. And me and this other guy, we were always one and two in the exams. And everything was going on one, two, two, one, back and forth. And we're making our way through, through this program to come out uh, as computer programmers. And we got to the end of, of the class. Uh, of, that, of, of that whole education. And he came out number one and I came out number two. You know. He gloried in that, you know. On the day that they posted it up on the wall there, he, I could hear him go, aha! You know? And I knew, I must mean I'm number two. <laughs> and he said, I'm gonna take, and he took like six or seven of us all out to lunch. So, you know, the top six, seven, eight. He goes, I'm, I'm buying lunch today, everybody. Tony, you're coming to us with to lunch and so we all went to lunch and he was goading me the whole time he's just reveling in it and I'm listening to him and I'm thinking fleshly I'm thinking I could have come out on top of you but I just could not give the time you give to it because I'm devoted to Christ my family ministry and so I, I decided this is my moment. I'm just going to put it out there. And I shared my testimony. I said, it's hard to keep up with you. But it's because, and then I went into my testimony at the end of that. He looked at me and says, you a Christian? I thought you were smarter than that. And then all the shots started. <laughs> And all discipline seems painful at first. <laughs> but I can tell you, as I was walking to Bart to take Bart home, I experienced an inexpressible joy. An inexpressible joy. Wear the name Christian. Be the first if you need to be. Put it out there. And lastly, and maybe... Really, the heart of everything he's been telling us is found in verse 19. Many think this is the key verse of the whole letter. This is the, a summary of the teaching he's been telling us. Therefore, 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, he says. Here it is. This is the heart of it. We should entrust and when he says your souls, he doesn't mean just that ethereal spiritual part of yours. He's talking about the whole person. Entrust yourself, your life, your circumstances. Entrust them to him. And therefore means he's drawing a conclusion, an application from what? Verses 12 through 18. He's drawing a conclusion. He's saying because trials will come, because trials are sent from God to purify and certify, because when trials come, we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, because our trials will increase our joy in the end, because trials are a sign that God is judging and beginning with his household. Therefore, if you are one of those, he says, who is suffering, Entrust. It's time to entrust your very life into the hands of God. Entrust yourself to Him. That's it. Entrust yourself to the Lord. 
you know, the, the, the first thing he says there to point out, when he says, according to God's will, let those who suffer, according to God's will, two things. Again, he's talking to the suffering ones because not all are suffering. And all suffering, again, is according to God's will. Nothing that touches you ever, nothing that hurts you, touches you, comes to you, comes to you apart from having first passed through the Father's hands. He has sent it out to you, you see. And we, we, we've talked before how this is something we need to s- settle down in. Here's, here's biblical theology. Some of you need to chew on longer than just this moment right here. Remember at the end of the story of Joseph, the end of uh, the book of Genesis, he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, or you meant it for evil, God meant for good. Behind everything you experience, there are two wills at work. The will of God, the will of the people involved in it. They mean something wrong. They mean evil for you. God is in there, and he means good. And so it's having that perspective again. Entrust yourself, because what you're suffering is according to God's will. And so entrust yourself to him. He's purifying. He's perfecting. He wants to see the image of his son in your life. He wants to see maturity. And some of that comes through the furnace of life. Some of it comes through pruning, right? Pruning hurts. But it brings order. It brings fruit. To the unexperienced, to the uneducated, to someone who doesn't have a biblical theology, of suffering, uh, even the most rudimentary level, and they see a Christian suffering, they may think, what do you mean? Where's your God? Where's your God, Christian? It looks to me like he's abandoned you, you see. Because they don't see what you are being trained to see, the purposes of God behind it all. To the untrained eye, pruning, pruning, Something could seem like it's destructive. You're cutting things off. I have, uh, I have a line of table grapes in our backyard. And every year uh, since my dad passed away, because he used to prune them, I prune them. And so I was, was, we were leaving to go somewhere the other day. They were way overgrown. And I thought, I only got a few minutes. I, I got to do something. I got to start pruning. Uh, and so I ran out there. And I was going fast. I was pulling at, at vines and cutting and cutting. And if you were walking by and you know nothing about pruning and nothing about grapes, you look at me and say, that guy's crazy. He hates those grapes. <laughs> look at him. He's trying to kill them. <laughs> And that's how some people see your suffering who don't have a theology of it from Scripture. Where's God? But what does pruning bring? You're driven down Napa. You see what? The vines are orderly. Pruning brings order, structure, and more and better fruit. Sometimes less fruit, but better fruit, you see. And so that's what God's doing, beloved. And so what are we to do if we understand this? We can't change the circumstances. We're not supposed to be ashamed. We are to respond in faith. And so what do we do? We entrust ourselves. That word means to commit something to someone whom you trust, to deposit uh, into the hands of someone whom you trust. You, you deposit money in a bank. I hope it's a bank you trust. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Huh? 
But this is, a, this is the word, to commit, to entrust, to deposit. This is the same words that, that Jesus used when he was on the cross. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit to you as he went through the, the horrors of experiencing the wrath of God towards sin. And he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf. And Peter has told us earlier, this is how Jesus survived his sufferings. Uh, in, in 1 Peter, in, in chapter 2, it says in verse 23, when he, was, uh, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Throughout his whole life, when he was persecuted, when he was reproached and he was always entrusting himself his life all the circumstances to the father's hands knowing he will judge he will take care of it here we are called to do the same things beloved to entrust ourselves to God and he refers to him as faithful creator creator emphasizes what the almighty the sovereign the maker of the universe the maker of the heavens and the earth the sustainer of all things the creator you are placing your hand your life into his hands not all state <laughs> into the hands and the will of the creator the adjective what he is the faithful creator trustworthy, faithful to his word, faithful to his promises, faithful that your suffering won't be wasted, that he is going to produce fruit and righteousness and change, faithful that he will sustain you, faithful that you will come to the end and you'll look back on this joyfully, faithful to everything he's ever said to you. So you are entrusting your circumstances to a faithful God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but along with the temptation will provide a way of escape, not to run away, but that you may endure it. He's faithful. And you will feel that inexpressible joy. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. He's faithful. And so entrust your circumstances. I don't know where you're at in life. You know where you're at. God knows where you're at. You may be at a fork in the road, or you may be coming to a fork in the road. You may be fearing a fork in the road. You may be doing everything you can to avoid the fork in the road. But he's faithful, so entrust yourself to him. And joyfully wear the badge Christian. And he will produce fruit in your life. Suffering changes people. Fire has a way of doing that, right? <laughs> it either purifies or it burns and destroys. Suffering does make us either softer or harder, better or bitter. And you could see it in the eyes of people we haven't seen in a long time maybe as I've run into some brothers and sisters from a previous church after decades and, and some of them, you come up to them and what was once 
proud or, uh, or the eyes of arrogance or uh, insensitivity is a big one, especially among men. But now you come up to them, they've been through the furnace a few times and what you see is what? You see empathy. Empathy. Compassion. They've been changed for the better. Purified by God's fire. But if we are saved with such difficulty, what will happen to those who won't face a fire of purification, but one of condemnation? And I imagine in a room this size, that includes someone here. I doubtless some of you have not yet confessed your sin to God and placed your life in his hands Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins that you deserve and was raised to give you forgiveness and eternal life. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In a few minutes, we're going to hear the testimony of several people who did that. I wish it was every one of you. So let's pause silently and you think about where you stand with the Lord this morning. I'll pray. We'll bring our offering, our gifts to the Lord, and we'll finish our time together. Let's, let's pray.